Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Mike Bat and Children of the Sky, one of the tracks represented on his new penultimate collection, double album, representing his career over the last 50 years. Welcome, Mike. Hello. Children of the Sky, one of the key tracks from your Hunting of the Snark project, and I think there's a guitar solo from George Harrison on that. That's right. That's fun. Uh, evening recording that went over to his house in Haley, the, the famous Friar Park house he has had. And uh, anyway, it was fabulous. It was the first time I'd met him. I, I knew Paul McCartney and, and I'd met other, other Beatles, but I hadn't. Uh, this is the first time I'd met George. And 
So, you know, we had a good time recording it. It was great. And we, we tried all sorts of different styles. He said, you know, what do you want? Try this, try that. And um, I said, you know what? A bit of something like My Sweet already Ready, that uh, bottleneck might sound good. So he said, what do you mean like that? And played it, and it was magic. It's exactly what I wanted. And you collaborated with uh, quite a lot of people on the hunting of the snark. I actually spoke to Tony Rivers, who was one of the backing singers on that as well. Oh, that's right, yeah. On the live version he was, of the album. Yeah. yeah. He, I did all the backing covers myself on the record, apart from Cliff did some of his own as well. But yeah, um, Tony was great, uh, Tony Rivers. We had, um, I, I used him on a couple of things like that, where I'd block harmonies on myself by overdubbing. And I needed to be able to do it live, and he, he'd come in with his team of two or three of them, and, uh, and and they did a great job. This seems to be the first collection of material of yours in a while, certainly of uh, you know some of the original tracks. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I did um, a thing called the songwriter, a songwriter's tale about eight years ago, something like that. Got to number twenty-four in the charts, which wasn't bad for an old git like me, really. Hmm. But uh, that was a lot of re-recordings of stuff that. Uh, some of the, in fact, some of them are on this compilation because compilations tend to be a bit from this album, a bit from that album, you know. Um, but th- that was uh, a lot of re-recordings, uh, original new recordings of of stuff I had done either, like a Winter's Tale, which I recorded obviously David Essex originally, and um, Bright Eyes, which I did with Garfunkel. I did my versions of those, but I also added in songs of mine which were hits everywhere else in England because. I've got quite a few of those. When when I was doing all my solo albums, just after the Wombles, uh, trying to get back on course as a solo artist, of course, in England, I had to shake off the Wombles as an image, and you just couldn't, and I still haven't. Mm. So trying to get on Old Grey Whistle Test and all those sort of more serious shows was just not going to happen. So whereas in Germany, Australia, you know, South Africa, lots of other places, I was free to do and be whoever I wanted to, because they had hardly heard of the Wombles. You know, I had lots of, I say lots of, I had quite a few uh, albums and singles which were well-known. I mean, for example, on the new uh, album, it's a double album, the, the compilation, uh, there are, there's a track called The Ride to Agadir. There's another track called Lady of the Dawn. These are which have been particularly known in England, both of which were massive yes. hits in continental Europe. My career and me, really. And uh, I'm concentrating more on being an artist and doing more shows. And But you're right, I haven't had a compilation in this country for ages, whereas in Germany they put out every five years or so. It's really interesting that you, you've started off in, in the music industry at such a young age. I've chosen one of your rarer tracks, uh, Fading Yellow, which I think was a, a B-side of yours. You actually answered an advert in the uh, NME? That's right. It was a very... Um, Powerful looking little advert with the Statue of Liberty on it because it was the company Liberty Records, which was a big company in America, but they were just starting up over here. They had a young A&R man called Ray Williams, who was 20, and I was just 18, and and, uh, he put this advert in, and I answered it and went to see him, and he signed me. And at the same time, he also got a call from Rage Dwight Hmm. and Bernie Taupin separately, who didn't know each other, and he teamed them up. That would, would have been quite a good day, I would imagine. I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, in terms of Elton and Bernie, it was massive. But in, in my in my particular case, it was great for me because I got signed as an artist and publishing on the same day, even though I had been schlepping around the business to lots of the junior A&R men 
uh, for about a year since leaving school, you know, there I was suddenly signed and pay me much for it. I don't think they paid me any money, actually. At least I could go around saying I was a signed artist. And then eventually I got, when Ray, the young 20-year-old in our who signed me, left to go and manage Elton Burney, or Elton anyway, he um, left, vacated his role, his job, and the people at the company thought that I might be the right person to fill it. So I got a job as head of A&R for the record company when I was 19. So that was, that was like jumping into a, the deep end, really. You know, so it was a great experience. And you were working with such great people. I, I saw on the label of uh, Fading Yellow that Richard Houston, who arranged the long and winding road, actually did the arrangements on that. Yeah. My first session as an artist, uh, I wasn't known as an arranger or producer at all. I was just, they just signed me as an artist and um, they booked the studio. The blogs around the record company, a book called Bob Reisdorf, produced it and he hired uh, Richard Houston, who had, yeah, he'd done Beatles stuff and he'd also done Those of the Days for Mary Hopkin. He was a very articulate arranger, very good arranger, and I learned a lot from watching him. I used to go, I went a couple of times around to his flat in um, Notting Hill. I just watched him arranging, and I thought, yeah, this is what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be an arranger, but that actually brought about the fact that the first session we had, which was three tracks, uh, a song called Mr. Poem, which was my first A-level. A-level? Wow, that was a Freudian slip. Uh, what was the B-side? Oh, yeah, another of the three tracks was the B-side. Then there was this other track, which we would put out the next A-side, and then we didn't have a B-side for it. And uh, oh, no, the, the other track, Fading Yellow, what happened to that? I think that was the B-side of my first single. It was, actually. It was. Yeah. Yeah. The point I was making is those are the only three tracks I've ever recorded as an artist that I didn't arrange and produce myself because I was just so new to the label. They didn't think that's what... They want to get proper people in to do it, you know.
But less than a year later, you were doing the arrangements to uh, your version of a Beatles track, Your Mother Should Know. That's right. The first arrangements I ever did were for Family's uh, Music in a Doll's House. A great break for me. Uh, certainly didn't give me a credit on the album, which was part of the deal, and it would have done me a lot of good. Uh, but it was great fun, and it was a really good experience for me. Armed with those sort of, again, jumping in the deep end, because I had no training as, a, as an arranger. I, I taught myself from books and things, same as I did with camera. When I did the thing, I was still signed to Liberty. It was then we become Liberty UA, so the record went out on United Artists. That was, uh, the, yeah, a cover version of uh, The Beatles, The Mother Should Know, which was from Magical Mystery Tour. Mm. I just really liked the song. Same uh, record that uh, Flew on the Hill and I'm the Walrus came from. So I did, I did a version of it, but it was a kind of unusual version with a very rock kind of string quartet. Uh, feel to it and a rhythm section and it was played a lot on the radio it very nearly became a hit what people call a turntable hit Lift up your hearts and sing me a song that was a hit before your mother was born though she was born Talking earlier about that that tension as, as such as it's you as a credible artist and I mean there, there's some people who knock the wombles but the musicality and the players and the writing is outstanding. One of my tracks that I've played on this podcast before is to Wimbledon with Love which shows the uh, the reach and the styles that, that you as the wombles created. Well it's very nice of you thanks. I, must, I really enjoyed doing that one and and uh, it's good for me as a young arranger. You know, I was 22, 23, whatever it was when the, when the Wombles happened to for, uh, throughout that period. The difference between us and another other pop bands 
And just just those who are listening think that there was just a w- one mumble song. There were many, and uh, as you as you just pointed out, there were about fifty because we had four albums and several other little bits here and there. Mm. What we had to do to get a hit the next time around each time was change, uh, which is exactly the opposite from what you do if you're a, a normal band. Um, the bands we were up against were people like Mud, Sweet, Susie mm. Quattro. Um, you know, all of those kind of, uh, you know, the basic rollers. Um, and we were just a fluffy version of them, really. But to try and distinguish ourselves from, from them, we couldn't just do, like, another version of the Womble song the second time around. Uh, whereas they had to do another version of Boom Shang Lang, or whatever it might be, mm. in order to keep their team bopper audience. What we had to do, because we were Wombles, we couldn't be, we couldn't be popular as individuals. And there was no sort of... Uh, girl-boy attraction to the Wombles. It was just we were funny and cuddly, you know. And so we had to change our records each time.
So I got a great opportunity as an arranger to learn, uh, you know, we, as you probably know, we did a Fred Astaire mm. spoof, which was uh, my version of a trying to write for a big Hollywood uh, film kind of orchestra, a soundstage orchestra. And that was, you know, Wombly White Time Tales. It was one of our later hits. It only went to about number 24, 25. But it was still, I could still count that because it was top 30. did um, a military band one. We did all all sorts of different ones, and that's what what kept it fresh and and kept us getting ready to play, which was great.
were one of the biggest bands of 1974. Yeah, in terms of single sales, um, the the Wombles were actually the week uh, magazine and we got the award for being the top selling singles act of 1974, which when you consider we had the basic rollers to contend with and even Bowie and people like that were having hits. I think we had four singles out in one year and five singles in one year and four in the other. So I must have been one with five singles, but there was one time the first single came up and I thought, okay, we've got a hit. It was number four, I think it was, yeah. And while it was going down, I thought, right, well, I better get the other one released because we must follow this up. So I was released it as the other one was still in the charts. So while one was coming down, the other one came up. And then the third one, which is Banana Rock. So remember your uh, Underground Overground was up there. And it was, as it started to slip, I'd released Remember You're a Womble. So it started to climb. And then while it was up there, I released Banana Rock as it started. The second one started to slip. But even then, the first one was still in the top 50. So we became the first people since the Beatles. Like people, Wombles aren't really people, are they? I don't know what they are. Rodents. Hmm. The first rodents hmm. since Beatles uh, to, to have three in the top 50 at the same time. Which was, you know... I know it sounds a bit braggy to say so now, but why why not? You know, mm. I think it's also nice just to know. I mean, some people sneered at, at the Wombles, but yeah, they did. So contemporary rock critics did, but um, now I'm finding that a lot of people who we either brought up on them or have heard of them since, or just listen to them for what, what they are, do appreciate the musical side of it, and and I get letters from people about about them and lots of lots of interest, and so. I don't regret any of it at all, except purely for the fact that it did paint me as a lightweight in terms of my contemporary critics, people of my age, who were criticising music at that time or critiquing music at that time. Mm. Uh, so I had to win my strikes back from them, and it was only later on maybe that uh, if anyone started liking my output, it was probably because of things like Bright Eyes and Winter's Tale and things like that, and uh, all the rock and roll things I used to do on. Remember, remember 
And in that period, you also had a hit in your own right, I think number four this time, Summertime City. Yeah, and Summertime City was fun because I was merrily doing Wombles last album, thinking, right, this is going to be the last album. Number four, that's enough Wombles for everybody. I must get back onto my own career. Instead of going where I was headed, which was to do quite serious solo albums, to the ones that were successful in uh, Germany, Australia, Australia, you know, Switzerland and all those other places. Those hadn't come along yet. I was working on them, or the first one anyway. But uh, along came the, the director and producer of um, the Seaside Special thing and said, can you write us a tune? And as a freelancer doing work, I, th- I said, yeah, you know, it's very difficult to say no. And uh, so I got a job, uh, wrote them a song, he wanted the dance troupe to be the singers of it, the new edition, they're called. And yet, sadly, we couldn't find anyone in the cast who was really a lead singer. So, and they could all sing, but they weren't lead singers. You know, they were good sort of musicals type, chorus type singers. So, um, in desperation, I just put my own voice on it. And it literally had to rush out to the factory, so it had my name on it. And suddenly, I found myself fronting this... Uh, Sometimes City pop single that was not anywhere near where I was planning to go as an artist. Uh, in fact, I was getting away from all that commercial bubblegum stuff and uh, wanting to get a bit more contemporarily serious, whatever the word might be. Again, not decrying it. As I said earlier when we were talking, your career sort of manages you rather than the other way around very often. And yeah, I ended up with, with a hit and it was good and I have to say that at the time, when I was then trying to establish myself as more serious, what I set out to be, which was the next Pat Stevens or the next Harry Nielsen or someone, the, the last thing I should have done was be put out a pop bubblegum single, but uh, it was what it was. And uh, I asked my record company, in fact, I insisted that I would only re-sign with them the new contract if they deleted that record and never re-released it. So... I got it back and uh, only now on this new double album, the terms with it. And I actually look back on it and think it was quite a good little pop record. You know, I think when you've got a bit more distance, just as I say, the critics have got more distance now, then I've got more distance from it as well. And I can look back on it with a certain amount of pride.
you've talked about that that shift in sound that you were aiming for. It, it certainly was there on on tracks like the ride to Agadir. I mean, very very ambitious musically and lyrically. Yeah, most of my albums have been like that. But of course, what people hear is the single that people take off. Now, in Germany uh, and Australia and, and all those other places I've talked about, uh, they did take that as a single and it was good success. In England, they went with um, a Railway Hotel. And that was another one that got loads of radio play on Radio 1 and stuff like that. But people didn't buy it. But Railway Hotel... Uh, what I, the point I was making with that is that that's a ballad. Some people say it sounds a little bit like a James Taylor vocal on that, which, which it does a bit. I'm, I'm not deliberately trying to copy him, but it may be just the way I'm singing that particular song. People were diverted from people who didn't buy the album. You know, when you put a single out, most people hear the single, but not many people hear the album. Even if even if you sell 200,000 copies of it, only the single is what people remember really mm. and so every time I made an ambitious album with all the ideas that you're talking about like on Ride to Agadir it would be overshadowed by the single of the same album we in the morning Casablanca to the west on the Atlas mountain foothills leading down to Marrakesh oh,
in the end, I had a row of hits as a ballad singer, really. Like Lady of the Dawn was the lead single uh, off um, Tarot Suite, which was my second album, my second solo album for Epic. Again, it was another, it gave, us, gave people a feel of me as, as a ballad singer. Again, it almost sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not, I'm just saying that it's hard to know much about an artist by listening to just a, whatever they put out as singles. Mm. Uh, particularly if they're me, because I did a lot of stuff on my albums, which were very much kind of adventurous, um, not experimentation, but there's a certain style of, of writing for a band, the orchestra and rhythm section that I really enjoyed, but rarely came to the fore and certainly never did in England because of, because of my uh, association with a certain furry rodent type of musician, mm. which, uh, which I've had a great deal of fun from and I haven't got a problem with. Sure. 
got involved in um, the score for the Caravans uh, film? Yeah, that was fun. The Caravans movie was a big budget movie and it looked like Lawrence of Arabia. They'd already shot it by the time they got in touch with me. And the short list of composers they had was awesome. They had the other three people on their four-person short list was, uh, were Don Barry, Michel Legrand, and uh, Maurice Jarre, who wrote the score for Lawrence of Arabia. He was the father of um, Jean-Michel Jarre. So heavy-duty competition. And I I didn't exactly beg to be chosen, but I did say to the producers, look, uh, I don't know how much you have paid mm. or how much you will pay when you do hire a composer for this, but why don't you just give me a little bit of it, like 2,000 quid or something, and I'll hire the LPO, and I'll write you, I'll score one reel of a movie. And if you like it, you, know, you can bring all your investors along and everything. They can look at it being recorded. If you like it, you can hire me to do the film and it's not done. And so they did. They thought that would be quite a good way of testing it out. And so we hired a big studio, hired the LPO. I sat and did all this music for them. I did it and wrote a song for them, the caravan song. And the main theme the theme became very successful outside this country and the song became very successful in this country with Barbara Dixon singing it, of course. Good fun to do that. It seems like that song should have been bigger than it was, uh, Caravan Song. Yeah, Caravan Song, there is a story to why it wasn't as big as it should, we hope it would have been. And that was when he was leaving uh, his uh, job, uh, the, the managing director of Sony, which was CBS then, came up to me and said, uh, oh, I'm really sorry, uh, you know, we had to do what we did with Caravan Song. I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, no, just that thing where we had to kill it, you know, when it was going up the charts because January, February was coming out. Then all the penny dropped because that record, Caravan Song, uh, which was sung by Barbara Dixon, was roaring up the charts in January, or early February, I think. And they... This Altani song, January, February, which was a great song, great record. They had this and they were sitting on it ready to release it. And people at CBS decided it would be a good idea if they killed Caravan song and put out um, January, February. So I think it made it to about 31 or something in the charts. I think it could have gone to number one. Mm. There's enough things like that happened in my life which have gone the right way. For me not to be bitter and twisted about the ones that don't get as far as you think they should. 
But you had, a year or two later, a number one with Art Garfunkel recording Bright Eyes. But understand it, that was also a bit of a struggle to get airplay or, or push that one? It was. Funnily enough, the Bright Eyes recording was done in 1976, which was two years before the Caravans ah. recording. But because it was for an animated film, and the animated film took three years to make, it didn't come out till 1979. When it came out, we, yeah, we couldn't get any airplay on it at all. And in fact, Sony, CBS, dropped it uh, off their priorities list. But it was only because I went to the, the publishing company. There was a guy there called Neil Ferris, a young guy who was a promoter. And in those days, music publishers had radio promoters as well. And I said to him, look, Neil, he wanted to leave because they didn't buy him a Ford Escort for his company car. And I said, look, don't leave. Stay and help me. And you and I can, you know, the record company have dropped it. You and I can go around and get as much radio play as we can. Well, you get the radio play, and I'll try a couple of tellies. I got on Swap Shop with Noel Emmons because I'd, I'd written them theme music for Swap Shop, so I knew all the people out there. And I thought they did me a favour, really, and um, had me on, and we gave away sort of stuffed bunnies and stuff. Another competition, I think, and showed that video of you know the, the rabbits, and um, that, that it suddenly. I was in the studio working on, on my second solo album, Parasuite, 
actually with Rory Gallagher doing some guitar solos, one of which is on the new album, my new double album, on the Imbecile from Tarantino. We were in the, in the middle of the studio and the phone went, and uh, there was this bloke, friend of mine, saying, oh, I see, I saw you seen yourselves for this morning. I said, oh, yeah, so what? And he said, well, I didn't say so what, I was being rude, but I said, so what's special? He said, well, they're great. Uh, I said, what's happened? Because we were selling about 60 records a day, literally. And he said, we've sold 60,000 today. 60,000 records all of a sudden from almost a standing start, like a virtual takeoff. And we sold 60,000 records for the next six, a day for the next six weeks. And it was number one selling hmm. 1.8 million, I think it was. CBS is first number one in this country. Wow. And certainly my first number one as well. So everyone was happy. That song's become a standard and what a track that resonates with people, given the theme of the song, you know, death. Yeah. You think of it, death is, you'd think it would be the most difficult thing to write about in the world without being miserable and mm. dark. And um, I just thought, you know, describe life and then death is, is, is the opposite. And, so bright eyes came to mind, you know, sadly. Uh, I lost my father. I hadn't really experienced much in the way of death mm. by, when I was 23. But when my dad died, I remember that, I remember seeing, thinking that. the It's just the eyes, you know, the, the person's actually gone and the eyes aren't bright anymore. Getting a bit morbid there. <laughs> <clears throat> Strange. 
And another song that is uh, is moving is Soldier's Song that was a hit for the Hollies. Oh, thank you. Well, that was the result of, yeah, the Hollies asked me just before I went away in 1980, I went to own this adventure of, of, of a boat that I bought and we went around the world in it. Before I did that, the last thing I did was that uh, Polydor Records said to me, look, the Hollies would like to meet you and talk about you doing some songs. And they asked me to write three songs, the Hollies did. I wrote Soldier's Song, another one called If the Lights Go Out, and the third one was called Can't Die No More. And they put Soldier's Song out. We did it with just an orchestra, no drums or anything. Tony Hicks put a brilliant guitar solo on it as well. But essentially it's an orchestral track. I think there's low, somewhere low in the 30, somewhere. It's been one of their favourite ones to do on stage ever since. I thought about that song in terms of, it's a a good example of me giving myself a brief. I'd be sitting there thinking, oh, what can I write about? Mm. And if I ever am thinking like that, I sometimes pretend there's a movie that I've been commissioned to write a song for. So I just imagined this director would come up to me and say, right, I'd like to, I'm doing a film about the Battle of Waterloo or some other battle of the same ilk. It's all about this young guy that goes off and becomes a man in more ways than one and they stay sad at the end. And so I, th- I sort of made up this little movie story in my mind and then I thought, oh, I'll write a song based on that. That was completely fictitious, even though, as you say, it's quite moving. I think one of the things you have to do when you're writing for movies uh, even though this wasn't, this was a pretend movie in my mind. You have to project yourself into the personalities and the, and the persona of the person that you're writing about. So um, I had to pretend to be an 18-year-old um, young newly commissioned officer riding out to join a cavalry regiment uh, in, in 1814 or whenever it might have been. So it was fun. I, I just find that uh, the fantasy of that is a very stimulating to help write songs. I was in contact with Bobby Elliott earlier today and I mentioned that I was speaking to you and he he said that um, when the Hollies start touring again, it'd be great to, to get you up, up with them playing that song. Oh, that'd be good. I'd love to. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, Alan's not with him anymore, is he? No. Sadly, because that's a brilliant vocal he did on it. I don't know that I want to go and try and be him. Because uh, he, you know, I do have a version of it, which is on my new album, which you know, kindly pointing out. But um, he, his is just the definitive version. My, mine's my version, and it's the writer's version. So it's, I'd like to think it was of interest. But um, the ultimate record of it is the Holly's record. The smoke was slowly rising as the light began to fade. There were fires on the skyline from some distant border raid And I was riding out at 17 to join my first brigade many years ago And I chanced upon a farmhouse where the woman took me in She gave me food and wine, she gave me shelter from the wind she delayed me from my regiment and service of my king many years ago. She said, Soldier, before I lose you to the fight, oh my soldier, I'll make a man of you tonight. She 
spoken to Alan and when I mentioned uh, this that working with you he he said that his favorite song from that session was if the lights go out and he he thought that that should have been the single yeah the little buggers went in and uh, remade it I've looked on the web only in the last few years and seen that there's a whole remake of it everything the same but much it's actually better the sounds are better and the drum sounds are better I think they got briefly back together with um, Graham Ash, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a version I didn't produce and the version I did produce, and the version I didn't produce is pretty much identical. It's got the same chord and the same lines and everything. But it's just been remade. But uh, the power to their elbow, I think it's great. I mean, I'm glad they loved the song. That that song could have been released and been a hit. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think it was in America. It's certainly on their greatest hits in America, you know.
also had a hit certainly in in Europe in 1980 with the Winds of Change. Yes, the Winds of Change was from my third solo album for Epic. And in the sense that it was a concept album, I disliked it in concept albums because I think very filmically as I've just been talking about. But I was about to embark on a voyage around the world on a boat that I bought with my family. And um, Winds of Change was a song uh, even I wrote it on dry land in Holland uh, at the, in the grounds of Whistleord Recording Studios in, Hol- in Hilversum uh, in a caravan where I was sta- stayed for seven months to write my album and make it, uh, which, funny enough, uh, in, just as a little aside, was made in 
Studio Two at Whistlord, and in Studio One were police making Zenyatta Mondata. So we would meet in the coffee and bar or invite each other in, into um, our studios to listen to each other's tracks. It's quite quite fun. Winds of Change, yeah, it's uh, that became a hit in international terms, but again, didn't really touch the sides over here. But that's that's, that's why this album will be. Some people might scratch their heads and think, hang on, these aren't hits. But actually they are, they're world, not worldwide, but they're international hits. Uh, for example, Winds of Change, I can claim it as a hit because it was, was a big hit in some countries, but it wasn't in America, for example. Mm. It fits well into the conceptual personality of the Waves album, because it's all about uh, nautical subjects, really. You know, and the fact that I was off on a life-changing experience. We can't survive anymore with this notion Just saving up to buy
But then after you came back, David Essex rang you up and that yeah. inspired you to write a, a Christmas song for him? Probably a couple of months after I'd come back from my sea voyage. And I'd been away for two and a half years, so I'd, I'd been off the scene. I didn't have a, you know, my track record needed polishing up a bit. And uh, it just happened that, that David rang me and said, hey, I need a song for Christmas. What do you think? I said, well, it's funny you say that, but um, Tim Rice is coming around with me to see me tomorrow to do some writing. And I've been thinking of like, doing this musical about the Aztecs. The first musical Tim and I nearly wrote together was Chess. But well, while I was away at sea, he met Benny and, uh, and Bjorn, and they, they wrote it. And good job they did, actually, because it's such a brilliant score. But Tim um, was coming around to my place, and I'd got this idea about writing a musical about the Aztecs. And uh, yeah, I was also in a, a deeply uh, emotional and uh, heart-wrenching, rending, whatever the word might be, experience, um, which was true, of being involved with someone who was on the other side of the world and the relationship was going to have to end, had ended really, for just geographical reasons, no other reason. So Tim said, well, why don't we try and combine that idea of the love that can never be with a Christmas song? And so we went back and I sat at the piano and I remember him standing there coming up with all sorts of song titles because... As you probably know, people write songs. I don't know whether you write songs. Mm. If you've got a song title, very often you can sit down and write the song. So he went through loads of song titles, probably 30 or 40, and about the 32nd one was A Winter's Tale. What about that? And I went, perfect, because not only that, it's not Christmas. It's not a Christmas song. Mm. It, it means that people can play it any time during the winter. So we, we kicked it off. We got a few lines towards it. We didn't finish the song. And then I added a few lyrics uh, because it was a very personal song. And I sent them to him and said, do you mind me writing, co-writing the lyric on this one? Because it's a very deeply personal story of mine. It's written to somebody. It meant a lot to you and me. It doesn't, it's not, it meant a lot to me and her. He's very generous uh, with his um, saying, no, no, of course that's fine. And uh, and we uh, we're very both very proud of the song, and David did a great job on the vocal as well.
just another winter's In terms of that uh, musical connection, the closest thing to Crazy was actually originally written for a musical. Is that right? Um, yes, it was. The closest thing to Crazy was written in the early 90s, at least 10 years before I met Katie Melua. It was on a solo album of mine called Arabesque, um, which, funnily enough, was made for Sony in Germany because they happened to be interested in me making an album directly to them. Because record companies, of course, got offices everywhere. Mm. And you get, you have to be signed by one country or, or another, and they others have a choice to put it out or not. And most of my stuff was signed through, just naturally through the UK, because that's where I lived. But um, my contact with the UK had lapsed, and the German company decided to pick me up. Mm. So I did a record for them. And weirdly... This record, um, which was called, as I say, Arabesque, the album, Sony in this country never even put it out. I begged them to put it out. They just didn't want to. It, that had uh, the closest thing to crazy on it. Gosh. I don't think I'm going to lose any friends by saying, because everyone has problems with their... If, if you're signed to a major record company, even if you become as big as uh, Taylor Swift or something like that, still have violence with them. And it's usually different. I mean, now... I could slag the record company off as much as I like because it's all different people running it. Mm. 
But way back then, uh, yeah, I did quite a few. But the guy that was running Epic at the time, um, he's still there. In fact, he's one of the most senior people in the world at uh, Sony. But uh, no, he decided it wasn't a good idea to put my solo album out. So that's how that record never got out. Uh, and then 10 years later, hmm. almost by accident, I was going through stuff with Katie, who I'd just signed. Um, we were trying to make an album. And uh, she was going through my old solo albums. She said, what about this? So in a way, she picked it rather than me. And of course, whatever happened, you know, happened. It went to, the album went to number one and it sold 1.8 million, which I think is six times platinum. 300,000 is platinum, so 1.8 million. That's what that one did. And again, that's a song that connects with many people because it talks about the the contrasting emotions of, of being in love. It does. And it could almost be seen as an illicit love. Mm. Um, I, I shouldn't be loving you, but I am. It could almost be sung from someone who feels that their person doesn't love them as much as they love them. In the musical, it's that. It's, it's sung by a character who has fallen in love with the other person but can't tell them. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's a song, as you said, mixed emotions and mixed mm. feelings about being in love. So easy to close your 
child, I yearn for you. How can anyone feel so wild? How can anyone feel so blue? This is the closest thing to crazy I have ever been. Feeling twenty-two. This is the nearest thing to crazy I have ever known. I was never crazy on my own, and now I know that there's a link between the two. Being close to craziness. Mike, um, our last track today is one of your most successful as well this time with uh, Katie, Nine Million Bicycles. But you that was actually inspired by a trip to China? It was. Uh, it was caused by a, a trip to China directly, in fact, because what Katie and I had both been invited out uh, to a, a German, would you believe, a German TV show that had tra- franchised their brand to a Chinese TV company. And the Chinese TV company had us over there, uh, Katie to sing, I think, closer to crazy, me to sing Bright Eyes. And they told us before we went on, it was for, it was going to be 10 million people watching. So we thought, oh, that's great. And so we did the song, did each, did our song. And um, next morning, uh, they said, oh, sorry, lost in translation. We didn't mean 10 million, we meant 100 million. I'm I'm glad you didn't tell me that before I went on I might have been a bit more nervous the reward for going and they did pay us for going they gave us a present which was a trip around Beijing in a little private bus Uh, us and various other people you know with us and the girl who was standing there at the front of the bus you know like with the microphone uh, was the same girl who had been our interpreter for the show the day before. Mm. And she was showing us around saying, oh, this is the Emperor's Palace and these red roofs of these houses, they were for the officers and the dental people and, and the grey roofs, they were for the lower in the hierarchy and all the different things about Beijing. One of the things she said was there are nine million bicycles in Beijing, just a fact, you know, that she'd learned as a tour guide. And I just turned to Katie, I said, that's not like a song title. And she said, hmm. you have to be joking. <laughs> that's not really going to be a song title. So if she hadn't said that, I might have just left it. But because she said it could never be a song title, I thought I had to prove it. So when I got home uh, to England, I went to the piano. And I just started thinking, what is, it's, it would be a comedy song if you wrote it just normally. And I, I didn't want it to be that. I, I thought, how can you make it important? I thought, well, it's the most trivial thing in the world mm. to know. So if you juxtapose that against a piece of trivia or against something that's what's the most important thing you can say to anyone, you can maybe, oh, I'm just about to blow your head off with this gun. Or it could be another thing, important thing you could say to someone, 
I will love you till I die. Mm. And so I thought if you could balance one against the other, you could come up with all bits of trivia as well, and other statements which are important. Um, and that's why it became a love song. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Uh, just, just for the listeners, the penultimate collection double album, I think, will be out on the eighth of May. Right. It also includes, you know, some of the rare, rarer tracks as well. So it's a real mix of songs that people will know, and uh, perhaps a, a few that people won't. Yeah, hopefully, it's a, a trip around my brain with some of my more unusual instrumental stuff or weird, weird stuff as well as symphonic stuff and uh, filmy sounding stuff on the on the second disc but the first disc is more of the songs that people will, will know from them having been hit and I assume when we get out of this horrible virus thing um, you, you'll be able to get back and, and, and play some shows yeah I cancelled a show I was going to see I was going to do a concert at Bush Hall on May the 8th which is only four days after release of the album uh, which is you know sad Everyone's going through the same thing, so mustn't grumble type of thing. But uh, also, a German tour has been cancelled. Oh, I should say postponed. I'm sure there will be a day when we'll go out into the sunshine and be you know, breathing and, and give each other a... Mm. Uh, actually, I, to be honest with you, I think there's way too much hugging going on these days anyway. But uh, even before this, um, I often thought, you know, it's, it's just getting to be, even if when you meet someone you haven't even met, <laughs> you give them a hug, you know, yeah, maybe not, you know. <laughs> and so um, I think that's will all behave slightly different in the future. You never know. Are you recording any, any new material? Uh, yeah, I've always got something on the go. Um, I'm working with a French artist at the moment, uh, a new guy who hasn't had any albums out or anything. So that's interesting. Uh, we're just writing together, but we're doing it by FaceTime, telling each other things. Yeah. What else? Uh, I'm working with a band called Avalon Highway, who are a kind of country roots band. They're based down in Midsummer Norton. They're, that's near Bath. Sort of good time pub slash festival type band. You know, get everyone jumping around singing, joining in. So I'm um, I'm enjoying producing them, but of course we can't meet in the studio at the moment. All all that kind of stuff's got to stop. Mm. So I think most people that do what I do are on the phone or they're writing stuff. I'm certainly I've got all sorts of things that I wish I had time to do. Like I want to write a symphony, and I'm not going to bother bother with the first eight. I'm just doing the ninth because the ninth is always the best. So why not go straight to the ninth? Really. <laughs> so there we go that, I'm just doing all sorts of things and enjoying it um, every Wednesday night now 9 o'clock till 10 on my Facebook uh, which is uh, my back music I'm doing a little live thing if anyone wants to tune in hopefully it doesn't go out at the same time as your podcast although your podcast yeah probably... people can listen to it whenever they want so they can uh, mm. maybe uh, watch you first and then listen to the podcast afterwards yeah or the other way around yeah Oh, the other way around. Yeah, and it's, it's on Insta as well, folks, out there. And on Insta, I'm bat underscore Mike. So, brilliant. Brilliant. So uh, thank you for the chat. I've enjoyed it. It's my absolute pleasure, Mike. It, it's such so great to talk to you and uh, hear you talk about such uh, brilliant material and, uh, you know, what is a, a fantastic double album of yours. So, uh, yeah, thanks again. Well, thanks, Jason. It's been, been great. Enjoyed it. All right. Take Cheers care, then. then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
It's a thing we can't deny Like the fact that I will love you till I die We are twelve billion light years from the edge That's a guess No one can ever say it's true But I know that I will always be with you I'm warm by the fire of your love every day So don't call me a liar Just believe everything that I say There are six billion people in the world More or less And it makes me feel quite small But you're the one I for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.